John chapter 21 says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin. That's Doubting Thomas. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you. Uh, there are scores of leadership books, but I'll give you the best definition of leadership I've ever heard. Turn around and see if anybody's following you, all right? Peter was a natural leader. He says he's going fishing. They're like, yep, we're all coming too. And they went out, immediately got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. We don't know if he looked different after the resurrection or not. And he said to them, children, have you any food? And their answer was no. And he said to them, cast the net on the other side or the right side of the boat. So they've seen this movie before, right? Uh, seasoned fishermen out all night. Now they're told to put it on the other side of the boat. And of course, Jesus is going to redirect all the fish or create fish. So they get in that net. And he said, you'll find them. And so they cast. And now they were able to draw it because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Peter heard that, he put on his outer garment, which was a tunic. It's like a dress. You're not going to swim faster in this, but he gets out and jumps into the water, plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught. Peter went up and dragged the net to land. Now, this is by himself, full of large fish, and somebody counted 153 fish. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. And now this was the third time Jesus had showed himself to the disciples since he had been raised from the dead. So this is our eighth week looking at this idea that we can get stuck in our Walk with God, right? And we've looked at all the subcategories. Stuck in relationships, stuck in money, stuck in career, stuck in ministry, you know, stuck in life's calling, stuck in circumstances. This morning we're going to look at what's it look like to get stuck with God? And I want to tell you at the outset that there are Christians and Bible teachers who would disagree with this premise. Uh, rather, they would teach that a walk with God is one of uninterrupted intimacy and bliss, that uh, if you're stuck with God, it's on your end, not his. You know, you could probably sell somebody on a marriage relationship that your wife or your husband's the problem. You're not going to sell anybody on the fact that God's the problem, right? So uh, a lot of people would disagree that you can get stuck with God. And many people, and it's sad, uh, would say that if you're stuck with God, there has to be sin in your life. And I don't think that's true. I think it can be true. Remember, this was the counsel of Job's friends. When they looked at all the calamity that come upon Job, they said, Job, look, you got to come clean. There's got to be skeletons in the closet, Job. You must have done something because no one is worthy of this type of affliction or judgment. 
And they concluded Job must have done something wrong. And it, it, it's like Christian karma, right? It's why the disciples said, who, was, who sinned this man was born blind? Did he sin while he was in the womb? Was his parents? We're always looking for a connection. Of course, Jesus said neither of those were true. As I survey the scriptures, it is very possible, and I'm going to argue in the long journey of following Christ, very probable that you and I will get stuck in our relationship with God. From Abraham to Moses, through the prophets, all the way through the New Testament, we see this. Now, I chose Peter because Peter's a Philly guy, right? He's gnarly. He's blue collar. He's putting his foot in his mouth. He says things he shouldn't say. Um... I was with a group of pastors one time, they had us do this exercise, that you had to write your own headline, like if you fell and you were out of ministry, what would it be, a sex scandal or something? And mine would be that I said something I shouldn't say, right? Uh, I'm a lot like Peter in that regard. And think of Peter's life. This is an amazing life. He's a fisherman. His dad was a fisherman. It's a noble occupation. But one day this itinerant rabbi, Jesus, comes along and calls Peter and says, you're going to fish for men. And what's astounding about this is Peter's not educated. He didn't make the cut in rabbi school. That's why he's fishing. But he's chosen by Jesus. And think about what he has seen. He's watched loaves and fish multiply. And he's heard great teachings. And he's seen healings. And he's been with Jesus for three years. Just think about personally what he's experienced. He walks on water. I know it was two steps. Well, when's the last time you stepped twice out on water, right? Pretty amazing. He pulls a coin out of a fish's mouth. He makes the great declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that revelation has come from heaven, Jesus said. His mother-in-law is healed, although we'll never know to heaven whether that was good or bad on his account. (laughs) And yet for all of this, at the time Jesus needed him the most, he denies him three times. The last time to a little girl. This is the man when Jesus said he had to go to Jerusalem be crucified. Peter said, what? Never, Lord. I'll never let it happen. You can count on me. And he denies Jesus three times. And yes, he's been to the empty tomb. And yes, some time has gone by and he's seen Jesus two times now in his resurrected form. But I'm going to argue that Peter's stuck. And my argument's going to be based on the fact he says, let's go fishing. And this isn't sport fishing. They're not going for marlin or tuna. They're going back to the life they once knew. These men who were called to fish for men, to be disciples, to walk with Jesus, to build the church, are going back to something comfortable and a life they knew before Jesus. And I can only imagine what's going through his mind, because I know it goes through my mind. He probably thinks he let God down or God let him down. There's probably guilt and shame, remorse, uh, all the thoughts that you and I, that pound us, the lies of Satan, are probably all attacking Peter that day when Jesus is on the shore, and I think he's stuck with God. Now, again, I said this is probably more probable that will happen at some season in our walk with God. Um, When people are stuck with God, these are the phrases you'll hear. I don't feel God's presence, and you have to add on, like I used to. Or the Bible doesn't speak to me like it used to. Or church doesn't minister to me like it used to. Sometimes people are just tired, beaten down by the circumstances of life. Maybe they've experienced great loss or suffering. Sometimes people look at our world, the sorry condition of our world, and they wonder, why doesn't God intervene? 
Even the prophet Malachi said, where is the God of justice? Job, who never cursed God, cursed the day he was born. May the day perish on which I was born in the night in which someone said a male child is conceived. In 2007, 10 years after Mother Teresa died, this is a woman who was known for her work, her infamous work in the slums of Calcutta. Her private journal was published. When they found this journal, they thought it would be filled with ecstasy and joy of a life working with the inner city poor in India. Instead, they found a journal of pain, torment, and a lack of God's presence. Listen to this journal entry. She said, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love has now become the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted and unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer, no one to cling to. The loneliness of my heart is unbearable. I am told that God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing penetrates or can touch my soul. And you can get to a place like that, serving Jesus Christ. Many of the great heroes of the faith have. I believe Peter was in this place. Can you imagine Peter walking into Galilee or Jerusalem? Legend tells us whenever he would walk, people would make rooster sounds of the cock crowing three times. For those of you who have been to Jerusalem, we go down into the pit where Jesus spent the night in prison. They built a church there, and on the church steeple, and I'll show you a picture of this or you could Google it, there's a cross with a rooster on top. How would you like to look at that for like millennia? You know, that's Peter's legacy. People taunting, people laughing. You know what it's like. And the, and the worst part about being stuck is you can't go forward and you can't go backwards. You know, if you can't go forward, you're miserable. You try to go back fishing, you're miserable. No matter where you turn, it's just this crappy feeling of being stuck. So if God loves us, why does it happen? And what do we do about it? I've looked and read and studied and lived this for a long, long time. And I'll give you five of my reasons. Uh, Several will be short. The first one is a shallow or non-transformative approach to Scripture. The second one is what theologians call the hiddenness of God that we need to explore. The third is the reality of spiritual depression. Yes, there is such a thing. The fourth one is sin. And finally, suffering. What do I mean by a shallow or non-transformative approach to Scripture? I'll give you an example. So I was listening to a podcast, and a pastor was on a college campus, and he was ministering to a young lady who had kind of lost her way. She didn't feel God loved her anymore. She had experienced uh, some things in her family. And after about an hour, she just poured out her heart that she really didn't know if God was involved in her life or if he existed at all. And the pastor, after about an hour, said, what could God do to reassure you of his great love and his involvement in your life? And her answer was, make it snow. And he says, I got to tell you, the next morning, a fresh blanket of snow covered that college campus. Now, is that the way God acts? Sometimes. Sometimes. I think everybody in this room can tell one or two stories where something like that personally happened. It's not normative. It was for you. If you were on the men's retreat, Carlos Whitaker's story of the banana uh, written on a fortune cookie is that kind of experience. 
It's a God wink. It's God telling you he's there. It's not normative. When we're feeling down and depressed, God doesn't make dolphins come out of the sea and snow fall on the ground. He can, but he normally doesn't. The great invitation of Scripture is that human beings can experience life with God. That's what this whole deal's about. That the transcendent God of the universe who's holy and powerful and mighty would have a relationship with sinful, finite creatures. It's called the Emmanuel principle, God with us, that we can relate to this holy, omnipotent God. And the place we, that this is revealed to us is through Scripture. Jesus made this great invitation when he said, this is eternal life, that you might know me and the Father who sent me. See, a shallow understanding of that is, you know, I'm going to spend eternity with God in heaven. That's eternal life. No, Jesus said it starts now. You can know the God of the universe now. That's eternal life. That's life in all its fullness and all its abundance. And what leads us into a life with God is the Bible. Now, I read two Bibles. And every one of you should be, like, ready to run for the hills thinking I'm a heretic, right? Right? Yeah. So this is one Bible, 66 books, inerrant, right? The other Bible I read is out there, right? Heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. Day by day, what does it do? It utters forth speech. So every time I'm in creation, it's speaking to me. But here's the problem with creation. The bee that pollinates my food can sting me, and the waves of the shore that are beautiful to me can drown a small child. So I can only go so far with God's creation. And then there's the inspiration of Scripture. And Scripture is not to be, you know, something of idolatry. It's an invitation to join God, to approach God. And Christians miss the point most of the time in their approach to the Bible. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Lo, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me, Lo, in the volume of the book, it all points to me. He was the word made flesh. There's two wrong approaches to scripture. I'll go through them because you may be stuck here. The first is to read the Bible for knowledge only. This is a grand mistake and something we need to be very attuned to because we teach through the Bible, we revere the Bible, and the people who knew the Bible the greatest in Jesus' day were the Pharisees, and you know the story with them, right? Paul in 1 Corinthians says, knowledge puffs up. You get a big head. You look down on others. But love edifies. The goal of all of Bible reading is transformation. To become more like Christ, to become more loving. Less of me, more of him. Back when we had bulletins, many years ago, on the back of our bulletin was the original Calvary Chapel mission statement. There's still nothing better. Calvary Chapel has been formed as a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Christ. Our desire is to know Christ and to be conformed to his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not a denomination, nor are we opposed to denominations as such, only their overemphasis on the doctrinal differences that have led to the division of the body of Christ. Here's the gold. We believe that the only basis of Christian fellowship is his agape love, which is greater than any of the differences we possess and without which we have no right to claim ourselves as Christian. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? 
That's why we read the Bible. Second error is to approach the Bible from what I would call a pragmatic or a formulaic approach. In other words, I'm going to find the seven steps to being a great husband, the six steps to business, the four steps to making a lot of money. Now, the Bible does have a lot of principles, and if you live godly, those things will happen. But again, that's not the goal. Neither is the goal how much time I spend doing any of that. Richard Foster, in his classic, Life with God, said the aim, the aim of Christianity is not external conformity, whether to doctrine or deed, but the reformation of the inner man, the spiritual core, the place of thought and feeling, of will and character. Behold, cries the psalmist, you desire truth in the inward parts. Therefore, teach me wisdom, this is a prayer, in the secret place of my heart, and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It is the inner person that is being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. That's the goal of Bible reading, to be conformed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Uh, No one modeled a life of mastering this more than Jesus, of course. And if you didn't read the Bible and you thought about who Jesus was, you would expect to open the Bible and find Jesus in in inordinate amounts of time of prayer and fasting and doing very little ministry. And the reason you would is because we'll read about the Puritans, right? I've read about guys who 10 hours a day, you know, were at their desk studying or kneeling for 12 hours a day praying. We don't see that in Jesus' life. Little snippets of him on the mountain or praying alone with the Father, but he was always prepared for what he faced. This is what Paul calls praying without ceasing. This is, this is the Bible becoming a part of you. This is in season and out of season. So I'm reading a devotional on Christian history. The problem with me and devotionals, I don't want to read that day. I want to read the whole devotional, like the whole book. But this particular day, I was reading a story about John Woolman. In early America, he was a successful tradesman and began to read his Bible. And unlike most of the people in his day, he started to see the ills of slavery in this nation. He began to fast and pray, and God was really working on his heart. And so he was preaching a series of meetings in a town, and he was put up in a house one night, as preachers often are. Uh, When John entered their house, he was tired and hungry, and he noticed the servants and inquiry to their status. When he learned they were slaves, he said not a word. Later that night, however, he quickly got out of bed. He wrote a note to his host explaining why he could not receive their hospitality. He went to the slaves' quarters and paid them for the day's service and walked out into the night. His silent testimony pierces conventional attitudes and behavior like a carefully aimed arrow of the Spirit. When the household stirs to life the following morning, Thomas Woodward, over his wife's vehement protest, sets free all his slaves. One more friend has joined the abolitionist movement. See, this guy was prepared ahead of time because he had a life with God and a life in the Spirit. And when he faced the situation, he was ready to act. That's Christianity. That's what Jesus modeled. That's reading the Bible for transformation. If you find yourself stuck with God, if you find yourself in a place of dryness, look, God's not going to make a dolphin come out of the sea. 
Peter took a coin out of the fish's mouth and he's stuck. No one saw more miracles than the people of Israel that came out, the Red Sea and, and the frogs and all that. None of that's going to work. What will work is communing with God through the scriptures. And here's my recommendation if you're stuck. Start reading smaller passages of scripture and start reading slower. When I was in Guatemala, I was with 14 church leaders. One woman was a spiritual formation director. And on her day of the devotions, we had a half an hour. We sat there with our eyes closed in silence and she read a scripture four times. Jesus saying to the disciples, suffer not the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. And I was sitting there, and it was odd, but there was something refreshing about hearing it instead of reading it. And then it began to soak into my spirit. I began to understand that Jesus was saying, look, people matter to God, and there's no elevation of status, and the kingdom, you know, all these thoughts were flooding my mind. So every day, rather than reading scripture, I read that scripture for seven days. And I have to tell you, in every encounter with waitresses and people and life and airports with TSA agents and all, there was a melting of my heart and an understanding of God's heart for people. All because one scripture solidified itself and made its way into my spirit. This might be a great practice for some of you to begin and understand the Emmanuel principle that God is with us. The second thing that may have you stuck with God is what we call the hiddenness of God. And again, not everybody believes this is true. I personally do. Whenever someone speaks of a life on unending intimacy and bliss with God, uh, they sometimes use this illustration, and you know preachers copy illustrations, right? Yeah, the next time you hear a guy speak and he has great illustrations, he just got it from somebody else, right? So this one I've heard about 1,100 times, where a husband and wife get in a car, and uh, the husband's driving, the wife's on the other passenger side, and she says, honey, you remember the days where we used to, you know, date, and we'd sit next to each other in the car, and you put your arm around me, and you'd, you know, pet my hair, and... I just felt so close to you during that time. It was such a loving time. And now look how far we are apart. To which the husband at the wheel says, look who's moved. Right? The idea is he's still at the wheel. The wife must have moved. You guys are slow this morning. Very remote. <laughs> so people use that illustration to say, well, God would never move. He's the husband at the wheel. We must have moved. Sounds really good, right? Problem is, it's not true because God can move and has and will. Uh, Jeremiah, God said this Am I the God only near and not far away? There are times when God will withdraw Himself that we might press in, that we might draw closer. Uh, There's something I get off my chest. Uh, This phrase, I don't feel God's presence, drives me absolutely crazy. And I think it's a product of our evangelical world, not the biblical world. Now, please don't get me wrong. I understand God's presence. I understand Psalm 139. Where can I go from his spirit? If I go to the heavens, he's there. If I go to the depths, he's there. You know, where can I go from God's presence? I don't want to get into semantics. But when somebody says, I don't feel God's presence, 
I think it is more evangelical. I think it's more the product that you've been to a worship concert or saw something on a stage or somebody moved you to tears. We've been kind of duped into this idea that a relationship with God or that God loves me is me feeling some kind of warm feeling. Now listen, I want to tell you this. If the worship was dreadful today, and it was not, and if the sermon was awful, and I'll let you guys figure that one out, If the place was dirty, do you know the presence of God would still be here? Because you all brought the presence with you. You are the fit habitation of the Holy Spirit. We no longer go to a temple, we bring it with us. So when we're here, the presence of God is here. But this idea of feeling, do you think Peter felt the presence of God on the seashore that day? And Jesus was, what, a couple hundred cubits away. So we have to understand this idea of feeling God's presence. What does that mean? St. John of the Cross was a 16th century monk who wrote a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. He said how God longs to change us, not just through joy and light, but through confusion, disruption, and even loss. That doesn't play well on TV or in Christian bookstores. See, we're not talking about suffering here. We're talking about silence. We're talking about the heavens as brass. We're talking about those times in life where you're not sure God even knows you exist or you don't know if he exists. It's John the Baptist sending men to Jesus saying, are you the one or should we look for another? Why would John ever say that? John, he, you know, he, leapt in, he leaped in his mother's womb When he came in contact with Jesus, he baptized Jesus. He said, I'm not worried to unloose your sandal strap. Why in the world was John saying, are you the one or should we look for another? And the answer is, John was in prison and he knew he was never getting out. And it was the dark night of the soul. The same with Joseph when he was in the pit, when he was in prison. But the beautiful thing is, When I talk about the hiddenness of God, it isn't as if God had gone somewhere else. We're just not looking for him in the daily affairs of life. Peter says, let's go back fishing. Everybody's like, yeah, let's go. And what happens? Jesus is 200 cubits away, and he's making breakfast. It's the last person they thought they'd ever see. And... Can you imagine if Peter was told, you're going to meet Jesus today? Imagine what that would have been like. That would have been like when you were a kid, you're going to the principal's office, right? Oh, boy, here we go. I denied him three times. I cut off the guy's ear. Oh, this this is going to be dreadful, right? Instead, he's making breakfast on the shore. And I love what happens in verse 15. You all know it well. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, then tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. (laughs) Isn't that cool, that relationship with God that way? Come on, God, you don't have to play around. You know everything. You know that I love you. And so you wonder, why three times? 
Well, some people will say because he denied Jesus three times, now this is three times of restoration. Some will argue that he was saying, do you phileo me, which is kind of a friendly love, and then he really wanted to know, do you agape me, do you love me? But I, th- I think the real proof in the pit pudding is, do you love me more than these? Now, these could be the 153 fish, could be the other 10 disciples. Whatever it is, what Jesus is drawing out, and remember, God's hiddenness is always the draw out for us. The question is, do you love me supremely? See, nothing else matters. Whatever you're going through today, wherever you are in your relationship with God, whether you're stuck or thriving, this is all that matters. Do you love me more than these? Abraham went through this time of testing. He was told to take his son, the only son that he loves, take him on a mountain and offer him there. It made no sense. God, God wasn't like the pagan gods. God didn't, God didn't condone child sacrifice. But he obeys. And you know the story. The angel stops him and there's a ram. And Genesis 22, we've all been through that. The question for Abraham was, do you love me more than Isaac? Do you love me more than the heir of this nation? Do you love me more than your only son? Peter, do you love me more than these? See, that's what God's drawing out. Am I your supreme love? Because if I am, everything else will make sense. And see, that's the process we're all in. We're, we're in a process where God will hide at times and he's drawing this out. Is there anything else we love more than him? Because when you love him, everything else makes sense. Do you love me more than these? Eugene Peterson, single-handedly, you can't talk me out of this, has the best title of any Christian book I've ever read, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Next time you're on a train or a plane or someone asks you what's Christianity, give them that answer. A long obedience in the same direction. That's what it is. It's not the feeling you have today, sorry, Feelings are wonderful. It's not what you saw on a stage. It's not someone who moved you to tears. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Peterson said there's a great market for religious experience, man. He was right. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship apprenticeship in what earlier generations called holiness. There's little appetite today for relationship with a God who is transcendent and a God who is holy and day by day is calling you in the separation to him. Calling deep unto deep. There's very little appetite for that. And yet it is the place of supreme joy. It is the place where we realize who we are. When Peter gets through this, he's going to be filled with the Spirit. He's going to preach the first sermon. 3,000 are going to be at it. And the church will be off and running. He and John will heal the lame man. And once again, he'll be restored to the fact that he can't get away from God's Spirit, that God's always there. The last thing I want to show you has always puzzled me in this. Verse 18, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And that's a, that's a euphemism for crucifixion. And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What's Peter do? Jesus said, follow me. Look at verse 20. Peter turned around. Saul, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, who had leaned on his breast at the supper, and he said, Lord, who has this betrayed you? And Peter, seeing John, said to Jesus, what about him? So here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, when you were young, you did whatever you wanted. Wherever you wanted to go, you went. You were the captain of your own ship. There's coming a time in this life with me, this long obedience in the same direction, where men are going to take you where you don't want to go. Here's the manner of death where you're going to glorify me. And legend has it that Peter was crucified upside down and demanded that because he wanted to be crucified like Jesus. But we're so prone to say, what about him? Like, like, I'll sign up, God, but what about him? Remember a couple weeks ago I told you guys about rumors, how fast they can get around? Well, John writes here that a rumor got around that John might live until the second coming because Jesus said, look, if I want that he lives until I come again, so be it. And that rumor actually got around, and the Bible had to kind of correct that rumor in the Bible. People never change. A long obedience in the same direction. That's the life we signed up for. A life, by the way, that's get clearer and clearer every day we walk. Because God saved the best for last. Another reason why we get stuck is spiritual depression. Very few leaders have the courage to talk about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole book on it. Spurgeon talked about it a lot. Spurgeon had a megachurch before the term was coined in England. 26-year-old, preaching to 6,000 people at a service. He writes in his book that depression that he's talking about isn't clinical. It's not chemistry. But there's spiritual depression. It can happen. He said it can so vandalize our joy and our sense of God that no promise of his, no scripture, can comfort us in the moment. No matter how true or kindly spoken, all words of encouragement, at its worst, everything looks dark and dim in this world. Luther wrote about it. David wrote in the Psalms about it. Elijah wrote about it. These are times real or imagined where we feel deserted by God. A few weeks ago, I had a nightmare. Uh, I don't dream, and I've dreamt more in the last six months than I've ever dreamt. Some of them vivid. But I woke up several weeks ago in a nightmare, like sweats and my heart beating. And in that dream, I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember all my friends laughing at me. It was the strangest dream I've ever had. And I could picture Satan laughing at us. Right? He's the accuser of the brethren. You know, I could picture Satan laughing at us as we try to live the Christian life. And everything we know about him is he slanders human beings to God and he slanders God to human beings. We know that from the book of Job. Every time he speaks. And in the book of Job, he tells God, skin for skin, a man will give all that he has for his life. The only reason man serves you is because you bless him. 
and he accuses and he laughs. And sometimes we think God laughs. And yet in the book of Job, we see that upper stage that Job can never see where God was bragging on Job to Satan. If you consider my servant Job, he's the most righteous in all the world. And Job proved Satan wrong, and so did Jesus, and so did Peter, and so can you, and so can I. Because we don't serve God for what we get. We serve God because he's God. And when the men were put into the lion's den, when they prayed, they said, if God delivers us, great. If he doesn't, he's still God. And though Satan would laugh at us, we get the last laugh. Because though we go through times of great sorrow and loss, and we experience the silence of heaven, we know we have a great high priest. And this isn't a cop-out. Jesus experienced this, Gethsemane, the place of the press. The place where the olives were pressed. My God, my God, he would say on the cross, why have you forsaken me? But it was in Gethsemane where he sweated great drops of blood. What does that mean? What kind of stress do you have to have for blood to get into your pores? There has to be some kind of loss, some kind of, you know, darkness, deep. But we find out that grace was sufficient. So if you're experiencing the hiddenness of God, I want you to know that God is there. Just like he was on the seashore, he's there. You just got to start looking for him. You got to get out and live life. You got to understand grace. You got to move. Another reason why we get stuck is sin. Spend no time on this. It's pretty evident. David said it was like rottenness in his bones for a year. The beautiful thing about Peter is Peter repented. He wept bitterly, unlike Judas who had remorse. And then the last reason why we get stuck is suffering. If you ask people who are stuck in the relationship with God or why they don't believe in God, the number one reason they'll give you is suffering. If you ask people who believe in God when they grew the most, their answer will be suffering. Now, I've talked a lot about suffering over the years, so I thought after I've talked enough, I'd show you a real short video, and then we have a little ministry time at the end. So let's watch this video, and then we'll close. I married very, very young. In eighth grade, we were together and ended up marrying right out of high school. We couldn't wait to serve God together, which we did uh, for 28 years, and um, had many, many great years, three children, and, and then that marriage ended. I had always felt like I could navigate anything married. And when I had to walk up and touch that one thing that I thought would just kill me if I ever had to give that up, what I found in that moment was that God met me there and he carried me through that incredibly dark time. I continued trusting that he had a plan as my children all married and I had grandchildren, um, one of my greatest blessings came four years ago when the last of my eight grandchildren was born. Um, my daughter, Michelle, had three boys and this was her last, her girl, 
and we were so excited waiting for the arrival of this new baby. And she called me that night from the hospital to say, Mother, something's not right. In naming this precious baby, uh, Michelle chose a name, Eden Grace. And Eden was chosen because that's a place where brokenness entered our world. Seeing the baby and after the testing was done, it was confirmed that Eden had Down syndrome. Um, I felt I felt devastated for my daughter. Uh, I didn't know what a special needs child would mean for her. Eden Grace is a perfect example of where brokenness and grace have come together in an amazing way. And she has truly become one of the greatest joys of my life. It's a gift that God gave me that I didn't think I wanted. I didn't, and yet the source of my deepest joy. Um, as she's pre-verbal and learning to talk, everything is a celebration. Every word, every, just the joy that comes from watching her discover and grow. If you were a boat, my darling, a boat, my darling, I'd be the wind at your back. <laughs> In life, I have learned that through it all, through every dark night, through every storm, through every difficulty, God has met me right where I'm at. He has carried me through and brought me to a place of peace and even joy. And I am grateful for that foundation that was laid into my life early on that has made all the difference. same direction. Wow, what a story.